The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's go ahead and start, if we could. Let's open with prayer. Father, thank you for the time we have tonight to study your word. We pray that you would be here glorified and um, that you would make uh, these things clear to us that are difficult to harmonize, to understand, O oh Lord. We thank you for the perfection of your word. We thank you for its essential simplicity, the central messages, O oh Lord, being clear to us that there is a God in heaven who is holy, who is powerful, who is loving, who has acted in history by sending his son, Jesus, who died on the cross, that we sinners might have eternal life. These basic things are clear, O oh Lord, but you said far more than that, and I pray that you would help us to understand uh, the future, to understand the end of the ages, and that we might prepare our lives to prepare our ministries accordingly, to pray accordingly, to live accordingly. So we pray that you would be with us tonight, send forth your spirit, and guard me from error, and all of us from indifference and confusion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the end of our time, last time, I was discussing the uh, period of the tribulation and uh, talking about um, the devastations that were going to come on the physical earth, on the planet. Now, um, uh, someone asked for a chart, and I have given you one attempt at a chart. This was a lot of work. I didn't draw this, but it was in a Bible study by John MacArthur, and I'm leaning on him uh, a lot tonight on the Second Coming. But he gave this chart, but he had a pre-tribulation rapture, which you see has been adjusted here a little sloppily but um, that was not easy to do I had to cut and paste and do all that but we have moved the rapture to the end of the tribulation in keeping with my interpretation of first Thessalonians 4 which seems to unify it then amen says Tom so at least I have one approval but uh, if you want to stick it back where it goes you just have to get a copier and start cutting and using whiteout as I did and you'll be in good shape but um other than that, namely the placement of the rapture, um, the only other thing that I think would cause any controversy or debate would be the millennium, the thousand years that follow uh, the kingdom age uh, that's listed there. Other than that, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward chronological laying out there I think most people would embrace. We're in the church age now. So the, the, the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth is going on. Uh, the tribulation uh, of a seven-year duration there at the end with kind of like flames of fire coming up, a time of great difficulty. I put a dotted line um, between the church age and the tribulation because uh, a lot of those things in a smaller way are going on now, as I've tried to point out. But uh, there is still that special time, the great tribulation, Jesus said, unlike any there's been from the beginning of the age until now. So it is a distinct period and worthy of uh, focus. Then you've got Armageddon, the final battle, which God willing we'll talk about tonight. And in the middle of that, I think, comes the rapture and the second coming all at once. That's the glorious appearing, the time when the Lord returns. So you notice the big U-turn there. Uh, the dead believers of all the ages together with the living ones that are above the line there under the church age, uh, living and dead believers united together with the Lord as he returns to the earth in the second coming. He comes down to end it all. He comes down to end um, the tribulation period and the battle of Armageddon and to usher in the millennium uh, as if, if we accept a millennial view or to uh, usher in the eternal state, the great white throne judgment and new heaven and new earth, etc. So there it is. The unsaved of all the ages just continue until the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, and at that point their condemnation confirmed by being cast in the lake of fire, whereas believers uh, go through that period and uh, end up in the new heaven and new earth. So there's a simplistic uh, chart uh, for you for those that like that kind of thing. So it might be helpful, helpful to you. But at any rate, we were talking about the time of the tribulation, and uh, I wanted to just make one quick point um, about the devastations that are going to come on the physical earth on which we, uh, in which we live. Uh, the book of Revelation speaks of this. Uh, the book of Revelation, very, very difficult book to interpret. It's hard to understand 
there are different strategies for interpreting it from the beginning. Um, you're going to take uh, different approaches right from the start, and that's going to uh, color the way you look at the entire book. If you're a dispensational premillennialist, you're going to take one approach. If you're a historical premillennialist, you take another approach. If you're an amillennialist, you'll take another approach to the book of Revelation. There are different ways that faithful Christians who love the Lord, who believe in inerrancy, have approached that apocalyptic book. It's not easy to interpret. There is definitely symbolism in it, um, and that symbolism makes the book a challenge. Um, But just focusing on this issue of the devastations that are going to come on the earth, there's three cycles of sevens in the book, well known. There's the seven seals, and then there's the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And that makes up the bulk of the book, although there are interruptions to those uh, cycles of sevens, like the two witnesses and some other things like the eating of the scroll and things that happen along the way. And certainly the career of the Antichrist uh, is woven through in the middle of those three sevens. Now, what you do with those sevens is really uh, very interesting. People take different approaches. I think there are generally two different faithful approaches you can take. One is what I call progressive parallelism and the other is a chronological approach. The chronological approach is the approach taken by most premillennialists, and they basically go from, from chapter 4 through chapter 22 chronologically. And the events of chapter, chapter 7 uh, come after the events of chapter 6 and before the events of chapter 8. That's just the way they take it. I don't think you have to do that and be faithful to the Scripture. Uh, when John, in the book of Revelation, says, and then I saw such and such, I just think that that vision came after the previous vision. It doesn't mean that the events of that vision will necessarily come after the events of any visions he's had up to that point. Uh, It is one way to approach it, namely that the visions he had, he got in chronological order compared to what's going to happen in the future. That's a fine way to interpret it, but it's not the only way. One of the things that causes me trouble with that whole approach is it seems that everything in the world is removed at the end of chapter 6. There doesn't seem to be anything left. The stars fall from the sky. The sky recedes like a scroll. The mountain and every island is removed from its place. And everybody's looking for refuge and cover because the great day of the wrath of the Lamb has come and who is able to stand. That's at the end of chapter 6. We have a lot to go after that. So with everything removed like that, I'm really not sure what the stage is for all the drama that happens in in chapters 7 through uh, 19 and the second coming of Christ. It's really hard to see that. So that's what tends toward, in my mind, the whole progressive parallelism. In other words, we kind of go over it and cover it through the, the seven seals, but then there's more uh, detail given with the seven trumpets and the seven bowls covering similar aspects. I think that's one way that we can interpret it, and I think it's a faithful way. But if others want to say, look, uh, it doesn't say that the islands and mountains were completely removed from their place, but maybe they just shook a little bit, etc., then you start saying, well, are you really being as literalistic as you claim to be at that point? Uh, To me, it seems there's nothing left at the end of chapter 6. It's time for the end. Uh, and that's what tends to say we're going back. And, and we, we are used to that kind of reporting. You know, you read, you read a newspaper article and you get it all in the first sentence or two. A summary that overviews the whole thing. And then the second paragraph, you go back and you get a few more details that, that, you know, fill it in. And then you start going more in chronological order to get more details that the author didn't think were essential to your understanding of what happened. That's just good reporting. That's kind of the way uh, it happens. And that might be what's going on in the book of Revelation. You heard me say might be, so that's the whole thing with the book of Revelation. That's what makes it so exciting. I don't, I don't know. But I do know this. There's going to be devastation on this, the surface of this planet. Uh, there's going to be, there's going to be uh, uh, judgments poured out on the earth. Um, there's going to be judgments poured out on the sea. There's going to be judgments poured out on, on living creatures in the sea, on grass and trees. And there's going to be judgments on the bodies of human beings who live here. There's going to be great suffering. There's going to be great trial and difficulty. There's going to be, I think, a demonic, a satanic element of that. Uh, I think there are demonic hordes that are going to come over the surface of this earth and bring great suffering. In other words, the normal restraining power of God will be removed and he'll let the demons have access. At it uh, within a certain limitation. It's going to be a terrible and awful time. So, at any rate, that is the devastation that I see on the surface of the earth um, from the book of Revelation. All right? So that uh, just finishes up to just uh, trying to tie off what I see in the tribulation, the general tribulation. Let's get now to the topic of the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ comes uh, at the end of the tribulation. I want to begin by just saying there's just overwhelming scriptural support for this. Uh, We may be iffy on some things, the 
We may be uh, questioning some other things about eschatology, but that the Lord is going to return physically, that he is going to walk on this earth again, that we are going to see him with the eye, uh, that he's going to bring great judgment, that these things that we're going to discuss tonight are going to happen, that cannot be controverted by any believer. Uh, Jesus Christ is coming back. There's overwhelming uh, statistical uh, evidence for this and support. Uh, John MacArthur did some good study on prophecy, and this is what he came up with. He said that prophecy occupies one-fifth of all Scripture. The second coming occupies one-third of that one-fifth. Very striking. Of the 333 prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament, only 109 of them were fulfilled in his first coming, leaving 224 to be fulfilled in the second coming. Of the 46 Old Testament prophets, less than 10 of them speak of events in Christ's first coming, while 36 of them speak of events connected with his second coming. There are a total of 1,527 Old Testament passages referring to the second coming of Christ. There are 7,959 verses in the New Testament, 330 of which refer directly to the second coming. In other words, one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers to the second coming of Christ. Next to the subject of faith, the subject of the second coming is the most dominant in the New Testament. For every time the first coming is mentioned in the Bible, the second coming is mentioned eight times. For every time the atonement is mentioned once, the second coming is mentioned twice. twice. The Lord refers to his own return 21 times, and people are exhorted to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ over 50 times. In other words, through all that statistics, what you get is it's a very important doctrine. The second coming of Christ is a very significant teaching. Now, at the end of your handout, I gave you a document that I worked on some time ago in which I just went through. Actually, I was doing a Bible study on the book of Revelation. And uh, beginning at page 13, this is just my own collection of verses. This is not exhaustive, but it just shows you the breadth of the amount of teaching there is, mostly in the New... I think it's almost... I think these are all New Testament um, verses, so... Uh, concerning the second coming of Christ. Uh, I, I broke it up into Christ's own statements and then in other New Testament books in the book of Acts, uh, the angels at the ascension. Um, on page 14, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking to the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Uh, Peter, preaching at the temple, uh, says that Jesus must remain in heaven until the time comes for him to restore everything as he promised. Paul mentions the second coming again and again. Uh, uh, page 15, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Come, O Lord. So he's asking the Lord to come. By the way, that's a very good example of how we can and should be praying for things that are absolutely certain. The Lord is definitely coming back, and here he is saying, Come, O Lord. Um, so that's a good prayer. Um, every time you pray that, I'm telling you, you're going to bat a thousand. He is most definitely going to say yes and amen to that one. He is coming. Absolutely. But again and again, so many teachings. I could pick any of these. First, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious uh, body. So we're eagerly awaiting a Savior coming from heaven. So many verses here. First Thessalonians uh, three thirteen. when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. First Thessalonians five twenty three. may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through may your whole spirit soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our lord jesus christ many many such verses so i'm not going to go through all these but you can just see what a huge and a, a vital doctrine uh, this is all the way through to the book of revelation so that's just for your future uh, reference um, my personal collection of second coming verses just look at the appendix there but as we come to this doctrine for all the certitude that i'm talking about tonight how certain it is for us as believers in christ how clear it is uh, to us as we read all these verses. Still, we are surrounded by scoffers who don't believe in it. And the fact that there are scoffers in the second coming was itself predicted by Peter. It says in 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So they're just saying there's no coming. And why? Because it's just like it always has been. It's, it's always been like this. Peter goes on to say they deliberately forget this is exactly how it was at the time of the flood. This is what Jesus said they would say. Life is just going to go on like it always has until these events start getting fulfilled. And so they're going to get lulled into a false sense of security. They're going to scoff. And there are different kinds of scoffing at the doctrine of the Christ 
physical bodily return. I've categorized them this way. There's the chicken little types. You know, the sky is falling. All right? But they're not saying it biblically. They're just talking about whatever causes them anxiety about current events. Look at all the ones I've listed here. Like pollution. Pollution's going to get us. We're going to be poisoned to death. Or earthquakes are going to get us. We're all going to be crushed to death. Or overpopulation is going to get us. We're all going to be overcrowded to death. Uh, nuclear weapons are going to get us. We're going to be incinerated in a nuclear inferno. AIDS is going to get us. We're all going to die in an epidemic. There's going to be some strain of AIDS that can be borne by mosquitoes. And we're all going to die, all of us, from AIDS. Or famine's going to get us. We'll all starve to death. Or war's going to get us. We'll fight each other to death. Materialism will get us. We'll glut ourselves to death. Global warming will get us. In some way, it's going to get us. You know, uh, it'll turn into a big freeze despite what we think. Who knows? I mean, by the way, movies are... There's at least one disaster movie a year, have you noticed? So if you... If you Run short of the list, just see whatever disaster movie there was this year or last year or the year before. That's what they're thinking might get us. A meteorite coming, it might crush us to death. Or uh, the depletion of the rainforest is going to get us. Let me tell you something, none of those things is going to get us. The human race will be here when the Lord returns. It's the Lord that's going to come back and get us. And we need to be in a right relationship with Him. He is the threat. None of these things are going to happen. None of them. I'm not saying that there's not going to be elements of this that will bring some suffering and death to some. I'm talking about the extinction of the human race. That will not happen. Uh, so that, that's one way of scoffing. Or as T.S. Eliot put in his famous poem, The Hollow Men, this is a different way of looking at the end. Uh, this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a, with a whimper. Well, I would suggest to Mr. Eliot that he read the Bible to find out the way the world ends. I mean, I appreciate good poetry, but not this kind of eschatology. This is just flat-out false teaching. You want to find out how the world ends, then read the Bible. That's how the world is going to end, with the second coming of Christ. Then there are others. There are the partiers. They'll scoff by partying. All right? They don't really care that much about theology. They care about a good time. And so uh, it says in Isaiah 22, 12 and 13, The Lord, the Lord Almighty, called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and eating of sheep, eating, um, killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die, I guess, is the attitude. So they're going to party. They're going to have, have fun, as much fun as they can have while there's still time to have it. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Stand-up comedians are going to mock religious people who say, repent, for the end is near. They're going to mock them. They're going to be, there'll be figures like that in movies. There's a mockery going on, and the party will continue as long as it can. There's that type of, of mocking. And then there's the blissfully or foolishly ignorant. Um, they're going to go about their, their lives. They're going to work hard. They're going to have their careers. They're going to be focused on building a, a world for themselves. And they're going to ignore this. They're not going to party like the second category or listen too much to the chicken little stuff of the first category. They're just going to go about their lives. They're going to build their careers and their families, and they're going to just go about their business without consideration of these things. And the Lord spoke of that. In the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing. That's ignorance. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. There are going to be people who will be ignorant. They'll know nothing about it. They, didn't, they don't know what it is. They won't understand it. And then uh, the judgment will come. All right, well, why must Jesus return to the earth? He must return. There is no doubt about it. And there are three things that I, I got this from John MacArthur. I think he did an excellent job with this. First of all, God's person uh, demands it. Uh, the promise of the Father. The Lord has promised. God the Father has promised this. He's put his reputation on the line here. That the Son will return. The Father has predicted the coming deliverer two, uh, 333 times in the Old Testament, but only 109 are fulfilled. That means 224 prophecies in the Old Testament have yet to be fulfilled. They're still waiting fulfillment. They must be fulfilled or, the, or, or God himself was a liar. But God cannot lie. And he promised these things before the foundation of the world. It's been predicted. This, was, this plan was worked out before the foundation of the world. And so God's reputation is at stake. Now, can we accept a spiritualized second coming? You've heard this kind of thing before. Now, Jesus Christ comes back whenever anyone listens to his teachings and is affected by his message. Well, listen, <laughs> I think it's a good thing to listen to Jesus' teachings and be affected by his message, but that's not what the second coming of Christ is all about. second coming of Christ is when his feet hit the Mount of Olives. 
in fulfillment of Zechariah. That's the second coming of Christ that I'm talking about. He's coming back. And so we, we can't take that approach to prophecy. Look at the first coming. How many details of his first coming were covered in prophecy? I mean, literally covered. Born of a virgin, Isaiah 7:14. Born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. You know, all of these prophecies. Enter Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. Betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11:12. His hands and feet were pierced. That's pretty specific, isn't it? Psalm 22, verse 16, his bones were not broken, Psalm 34, 20, and he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, 9. These are specific physical details of stuff that really happened to him. All right, and, and more could be multiplied. I've made the point. The point is that uh, why shouldn't there also be physical details about the second coming? And there are. And so therefore we cannot, we should not spiritualize the second coming. Now what are some of these Old Testament prophecies that are waiting fulfillment? Well, there are 224 of them. And I have noted that we won't have time for that many tonight. All right. I'm starting to get a sense of the pace here. And uh, there's no way. We're not getting through the 17-page document either tonight. You know that. But we'll do the best we can. 224 prophecies? Well, like what? Well, how about this one? Genesis 49.10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Is that fulfilled? Well, part of it is. Uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah has come and he's established his claim to kingly authority. But is the obedience of the nations his now? No, it's, it's not. They're not obeying him. They're, not, they're in rebellion against him. It's unfulfilled. Or, or these two, which uh, I, I think are significant because the father makes them directly to the son. He's speaking to the son concerning these things. It's very personal. inter-Trinitarian speech. Father to the son. I will do this for you. Psalm 2, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Has that been fulfilled? No, it hasn't. This is the very thing quoted in Revelation 19 connected with the second coming of Christ. Not until Jesus comes back will he rule the nations with an iron scepter. Or Psalm 110. Uh, verse 1 and 2, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Has this been fulfilled? No. Jesus' enemies have not been made a footstool for his feet. That will not be fulfilled until the events of Revelation 19 are consummated. All right, these things were direct promises made from the Father to the Son. And there are others. Uh, Isaiah 9, which we just looked at on Sunday morning a few weeks ago. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Is the government on his shoulders? Well, it depends what you mean. But if you go on in, in, in Revelation 9, I mean, sorry, Isaiah 9. Now, I know Jesus has said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But we know that that's, that's uh, it's, it's, a, it's an arrangement made between the Father and the Son that the earth doesn't recognize yet. The, the earth actually in Psalm 2 is trying to break the chains of the sun and throw off his fetters and, and not submit to his rule. And Jesus is actually right now holding out his hands all day long to a disobedient, rebellious people saying, come to me, take my yoke upon you. He's inviting people to submit to his kingly reign, but he doesn't have uh, that authority that is going to be his in the end. So what does it say in Isaiah 9, 7? Of the increase in his government, of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Has that been fulfilled? I say it hasn't. Establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. It's not, it's not consummated. It's not been fulfilled. Same thing in Daniel 7 with the Son of Man vision. Every nation and language and people will worship the Son of Man and he will establish a throne that will last forever. These things have not been consummated because the world is primarily in rebellion against him. That's why he's not recognized. Now, Jesus himself made statements concerning his second coming. So the Father, the character of God is behind this because he has made these promises. The Son has also made them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, John 14. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what does he say? I will return and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. That is a promise he has made. 
Is that just after his crucifixion when he showed evidence of his resurrection? Do you think that's what he's talking about? No, because he said, I'll return and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. That didn't happen then. He was just giving evidence, physical evidence of his resurrection. So then what? It's an unfulfilled promise. I will return. He's coming back. He said he would. He's made this promise clearly. He says in, at the very end of the Bible, if this is the final promise Jesus makes. He, te- he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In case you didn't know who it was that testified to these things, you know right from the statement, I am coming soon. So it's Jesus who's giving testimony. He says, I am coming. That's the f- that's second to last verse of the Bible. He says, I'm coming back. So he would be proven to be a liar if he doesn't return. But he will come back. And then there's the guarantee of the Spirit. I could not find a verse in which the Spirit, it says, uh, specifically it's ascribed to the Spirit that the, concerning the second coming, but we don't have to go there. We just have to believe that everything that the apostles wrote in the epistles was inspired by the Spirit of God. And so all of that catalog of verses that I gave you at the end from Paul's epistles and Peter's and from the book of Hebrews and, and uh, all, of these, all of these statements concerning the second coming of Christ were done by the Spirit of God. And then in Revelation 19.10, it says, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All right. <laughs> well, I don't know if you want to capitalize that word spirit there, but why not? Okay, the spirit of prophecy, the Holy Spirit, who is the essence of prophecy, what does he do but give testimony of Jesus? Well, why is that significant to the second coming of Christ? Well, it's positioned in the Bible. This statement is in Revelation 19.10. What happens in Revelation 19.11? Then I saw heaven open and a rider on a horse and down he comes. It's the very next thing that happens after this statement. So the Father testifies to the second coming. The Son has testified to the second coming. The Spirit has testified to the second coming. He is coming back. This is a Trinitarian teaching, and it must be so, and it will be so. God's program also demands the second coming. Uh, We've already talked about the rapture. Uh, He is going to come and gather his people to himself, and we will meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That cannot happen except for the second coming. Jesus must come back and fulfill that promise. The program for the nations also demands it. The judgment of all the nations comes from a holy God. We'll talk about these verses at the end. But uh, multitude, Joel 3.14 says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Um, and uh, Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So he has a plan for the nations to separate them and to uh, bring some to eternal life and others to eternal condemnation. When does that happen? When the Son of Man comes in his glory. So this is essential to his plan for the nations. All right. Uh, Revelation 14:15 also speaks of the harvest of the earth, the judgment of the earth. It must happen. Then there's the program for Israel. There are a lot of different things, but I just uh, got done preaching on uh, Isaiah 11. And you remember those verses, uh, Isaiah 11, 10 through 12. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations, that's the Gentiles, will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. And in that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered peoples of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. This comes at the second coming when Jesus establishes his reign on earth. He reaches out his hand, remember I said, and noted a second time. There is a first regathering in history, I think at the time of the restoration from the exile of Babylon, but that wasn't the great one. There was only 40,000 Jews that came back at that point. This is the great and glorious regathering at the end of time when Jesus returns. And he sends forth his spirit and they are converted and then he physically is on the earth to be their king and gathers them to himself. So that's very powerful. With this one in Isaiah 51, 1 through 3. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you are cut and to the quarry from which you are hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Has this been fulfilled? The descendants of Abraham, the ruins of their land, restored and made beautiful and glorious like, like Eden again. 
I don't see how that how what what are you going to point to in history if you say that this is spiritual this is only talking about the spiritual restoration you don't understand how important the physical stuff that God made is to him Genesis chapter 1 God saw all that he had made and behold it was very good does he care about your body yes he's going to raise it from the dead does he care about this earth yes he does he's going to raise it from the dead too and so this is, this is powerful. Jesus must come back in order to accomplish this. And God's priorities uh, demand that these three are very powerful. First of all, the humiliation of Christ must be reversed. What did the world think of Jesus when God sent his only begotten son into the world? What did, how did they see him? He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And those that did receive him, they received him, it seems, contrary to all the evidence of their senses. Right? Though we have not seen him, we love him. All right? And so we believe in his glory, but we've never seen it. We testify to it. We, we read words on a page and we... No, that's not enough. The Lord must have his glory. He must be seen as glorious. The first coming was to give his life as an atonement for many. That's why he came. But he's going to come a second time without reference to sin. He's going to come a second time not to give his life. He's going to come a second time so we see who he really is. And we will see his glory and all the nations on earth will see just how powerful Jesus is. The humiliation of Christ must be reversed. I like this. First uh, Peter 1, 10 through 12, 10 through 11 says, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointed, pointing when he predicted uh, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Is it too much to see in, that, in the, the phrase there the first and second coming. Do you see it? The sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now you could say the glories that would follow is the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it is glorious, but it's not glorious enough. All right? We want an open, clear display of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Amen? We want to see him in the clouds. We want to see him with power. We want to see his mighty arm laid bare. We want to see him crush his enemies. We want to see all that. Amen? We want to see him glorious. The sufferings that... Uh, came and the glories that would follow, I think, is an excellent two-part outline to Psalm 22. When I preach Psalm 22, I preach it that way. So you want a good outline to Psalm 22? You get it from 1 Peter 1.11. All right, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. All right, what are the sufferings of Christ? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22.1. Psalm 22.16, they have pierced my hands and my feet. That's sufferings of Christ. Rejected, murdered, despised, spat upon, treated as he was, sufferings of Christ. But the psalm doesn't end with him dead. It, it ends with glory and majesty. And so it says in Psalm 22, 27 and 28, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Well, I thought he was dead. He's alive. And, and, and they're all going to bow down before him. And dominion will belong to him and he will rule over the nations. That is the second coming of Christ. Sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. He must come again. It's an incomplete story. We haven't seen it all yet. And so he must return. The humiliation of Christ must be reversed. And what about the exaltation of Satan? It must end. It must end. He is called the God of this age. He's running free over the planet. It's one of the reasons I do not believe that the millennium is going on right now. It just stretches language to the breaking point to think that Satan is chained up and thrown in a pit somewhere. He is running free and he is presently deceiving the nations. He is not deceiving the elect, but he is deceiving the nations. And uh, as we'll see, that is the key to Revelation 20 and the whole millennium, which thankfully we will not get to tonight at all. Definitely not. Um, but we'll continue looking at it for another, another week, at least I will. I will be here teaching next week. I'm taking a week of vacation to work on my book, The Endless Story. Um, continue to work on that. So pray for me next week as I do that, that I would make progress in that. And uh, pray for Andy Wynn as he preaches on John 3 this Sunday. So that's going to be a, a glorious message. I've seen the outline. He's done a phenomenal job. So looking forward to that. But I will be here. Um, it's going to be one of the oddest vacation weeks. You know, I talk about staycation. This is going to be the ultimate staycation. I might even be here. But if you see me here, please act like you didn't see me here. I don't know. Whatever. But... Uh, Anyway, I'm just working on that next week, but I couldn't give up this class. So I'm going to be here next Wednesday evening teaching. Um, so we'll talk about the millennium. But uh, long story short, uh, the, uh, the freedom that Satan has and the glory that he's heaping on himself and the arrogance and the pride in which he lives, it must end. 
And you know what's going to end it. It's the second coming of Christ that ends it. He's going to come back. Jesus is going to come back and contradict Satan's statement that, that this is his world. This isn't Satan's world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? This is, this is Jesus' world. This is the Father's world. And Jesus is going to come back and he's going to deal with Satan. Um, his self-worship, Satan's self-worship, uh, which he displayed in the temptation of Christ, must end. Listen to this, Luke 4, 5 through 8. This may be the greatest arrogance ever shown by any created being. I, I really think it is. This, is. this is the pinnacle of arrogance and pride right here. All right? The devil ha- uh, led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to them, and he said to him, he said to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Do you not see the unbelievable arrogance of that demand? This is a created being saying to his own creator, get down on the ground and worship me. Well, Jesus wasn't going to do that. He's actually going to destroy him. But in his wisdom, do you see the restraint of Jesus? Did he have the power to destroy Satan right there at that moment? Absolutely. He has all power. He didn't do it. He answered him with scripture and moved on. The patience of Christ. But that's going to end. There'll come a time when he will come back and he will crush Satan. He will consummate this statement in Isaiah 14, verse 15. You are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. So he's going to throw him down. All right? Finally, the hope of the saints must be fulfilled. We are hoping for this, aren't we? We're looking forward to this. We want this to happen we want to see it with our own eyes. And so 1 Peter 1, 6-9 says, In this salvation you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is our hope, that Christ will be exalted and glorified, that he will be received by his people and that we'll be together with him forever. So for all of these reasons, nine reasons, Jesus must come back. Now let's talk about the actual event as it's displayed in prophetic scripture. How is it talked about? First of all, let's talk about the circumstances of the second coming. Let's talk about when. When will it happen? All right, well, let me quote a scripture verse to you. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So that's when it's going to happen. I don't know. That is a God-ordained I don't know. We get to say that. We can teach as much as we want on end-time things. But we also get to say, with God's authority, I don't know when it's going to happen. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember Acts 1? Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority. Is there a time set? Is there a date set? Oh, yes. You just don't know it, and neither do I. And that's part of God's plan. It's good for us not to know, or else we would know. But we don't know. Instead, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what we're to do. Be busy until he comes doing the things that God's called us to do. The two infinite journeys, internal journey of growth and personal holiness, external journey of worldwide disciple-making through preaching the gospel. That's what he's called on us to do. That's how we bring God glory. We're to be busy on those two things until the day we die. So that's what we're supposed to do, but we don't know the times or dates. We do know, however, it will be at the end of the tribulation. It must be. Why is that? Because it ends everything. (laughs) All the other stuff has to happen before that. And so it must be at the end of that seven-year period of the tribulation. That's when it must happen. If there is a seven-year period, then Christ's coming ends that seven-year period. Second coming of Christ must happen then at the end of the tribulation. So we'll be in the, in the period of the reign of the Antichrist. We know that the Antichrist will be in his so-called glory, in his power, reigning on his throne, such as it is. He will be defying God. He will be claiming to be God. He will be exercising all of that satanic influence he'll have. He'll be doing all of that deceiving, and he'll receive worship, and the false prophet's going to be doing all that stuff, and the miracles, that whole thing is going to be going on, and some more things besides, which we'll talk about in a minute. But that's when it happens, when the Antichrist is in his glory doing all that he can do to, uh, to reign on the earth. 
All right? Uh, so Jesus comes back during that time. Uh, he is also going to be working on the Jews. He's going to, it seems, make a covenant with them. Uh, perhaps that will include the permission to set up a temple what I say, God's temple in quotation marks. I put them in quotation marks because what the Jews believe about that building and what God thinks about the building, I think are two different things. All right? They may think that it's God's temple, but it really isn't because God isn't going to dwell there in his glory because he's done with earthly man-made temples. We are the temple of God. Jesus' resurrected body is the temple. All right? That's, that's the temple. We don't need an earthly temple anymore. We sure don't need animal blood. That is finished. But the Jews don't know that in their unbelief. In their godlessness, choosing the uh, word that Paul uses, that the deliverer will come from Zion, he'll turn godlessness away from Jacob. They're godless in that they don't know Jesus, right? No one, you know, can come to the Father except through the Son. You can't claim to have the Son. If you reject the Son, you don't have the Father. And so they're godless. If they don't have the Father and the Son, then they're godless. And so in their godlessness, in their desolation, they'll build a temple. Antichrist is doing all that. But then in the middle of it, of course, he shuts down the animal sacrifice and he sets himself up uh, to be God, to be worshipped. The Jews don't want any part of that. They've never accepted that kind of thing. And so he's going to begin aggressively persecuting them. And I think in the midst of that suffering, that's when God takes the, uh, the scales from their eyes. In the midst of that uh, grief during the time of the Antichrist, at last they will see Jesus. They will look on the one they have pierced and they will mourn for him as for an only son. They will finally see Jesus. And you might say, well, couldn't God do that now? Of course he can do that now. He can do that any time. That's the whole point of God's sovereignty and salvation, Romans 9 through 11. It's, God, it's because God can do that, that it will happen. And it's going to happen exactly when he says. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then he will do it. It's while all of that's going on that these final events will occur. Now, what is going to happen? Well, huh, that's interesting. What is going to happen? It seems what's going to happen is Gentile nations and their armies are going to focus on the destruction of Israel and try to finish her off. It seems that that's what's going to happen. Remember what I said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. I also have said just the phrase, as it was, so it will be, is important for eschatology. And so therefore, when Jesus in Luke 21 is giving his version there in, in that gospel of the end time events, he talks about the surrounding of Jerusalem with armies. Okay? So it says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. Notice that word punishment. Who's getting punished? Well, the Jews are. They're getting punished for their unbelief and their rejection of Christ. They're getting chastised by God. It is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, it says in 1 Peter. So it's going to start there and uh, this time of punishment. How dreadful it would be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Remember how he says in Matthew, pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. Well, who cares about the Sabbath? Well, the Jews do, and other groups as well, but certainly the Jews care about the flight on the Sabbath. They'll have certain rules about that, and so there's a certain concern there. Uh, they will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners uh, to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles, times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, you could say all of that is talking about the fall of Jerusalem in the days of the, of the Romans in A.D. 70. I think you're absolutely right. But I also think there's a principle, as it was, so it will be. I think we've just seen this again and again. And there's just too many prophecies that talk about multitudes of Gentile nations coming to Palestine, focused on Jerusalem and seeking to destroy it. And those things, if you read the details, have not been fulfilled yet. It just hasn't happened yet. And so, therefore, I think it's going to happen again. I think they're coming. I think a bunch of armies are coming to Jerusalem and they're going to try to destroy it. And so Jesus goes right on from, from this description, which seems to talk perhaps about the first, you know, the, the time of the fall of Jerusalem and the time of the Romans, when he says they're going to be scattered to the nations. Right after that, though, he says, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and, as the roaring and the tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's the second coming of Christ. So we've gone in just a few verses uh, from seeing Jerusalem surrounded by armies to the second coming of Christ. That's why I say it's going to happen again. So that seems to be what's going to happen. Uh, there's going to be this one world government, but realize 
that the one world government is a coalition of powers that's held together poorly. All right, remember we talked about the feat of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue in the final phase of human history. I don't need to go into the final phase of the Roman Empire. We'll just say the final uh, phase of human government on the earth will be a very poor coalition of clay and iron that doesn't stick well together. All right, and why? Because the love of most is growing cold. They don't love each other. There's no natural affinity or loyalty. They're afraid of the Antichrist. Satanic's power is behind them, but they're coming together, etc. And so there's going to be a convulsion of, of the nations at that time. Now, this is the place where most premillennialists put the destruction on Gog and Magog, all right? Uh, the Gog prophecy, Ezekiel 38, is fascinating. Uh, and it could very well just refer to the invasion from the north. All the invasions came from the north, except Egypt occasionally would come from the south. For the most place, that's how you get at Israel. You're coming down from the north. Um, so, I mean, when the, when, the, uh, when the Assyrians came, they came from the north. When the Babylonians came, they came from the north. When the Greeks came, they came from the north. They always come from the north. Because from the south is Egypt, and from the west is the Mediterranean Sea, and from the east is the desert, you know, Fertile Crescent. There's just desert there. And so they're coming down from the north. However, there are some indications that this may be speaking of an eschatological attack on um, Israel. And uh, many commentators think that this is coming from far north. There are certain verses that indicate we're talking about far north, uh, the northern regions where the Scythians lived. Uh, so that's north even of Turkey. And that's where certainly in the days of the Soviet Union, in the days of Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth, the focus then was on the Soviet Union. Um, frankly, once you get past, you know, the Caspian Sea and Turkey and all that, you're in Russia. I mean, that's it. I mean, it's 6,000 miles east to west. And so if you go far enough north, you're going to hit Russia at some point. So many interpreters, at least at this phase in human history, they look at that and they say we're talking about whatever peoples there are directly north, far north of Israel they're coming down. What happens to them? Well, according to this prophecy, they're going to come down to try to destroy Israel and supernatural force will come and destroy them from above. God's basically going to intervene and just incinerate and destroy that army from Gog. This, I do not think, refers to the second coming of Christ. Okay, I think this refers to something short of that, some kind of miraculous intervention at this particular point. However, it might be part of that conglomeration of armies that's going to come. That's up to interpretation. Um, John MacArthur taking a futurist view of Daniel 11. I'm on page 9 in my outline. And mixing in Ezekiel 30, uh, 38, Revelation 9, sees four armies coming from the four points of the compass. An army coming down from the north, that's Russia, gets destroyed early on in the tribulation period. An army coming up from the south, that's also led by the Antichrist, um, comes up from the Egypt. Where does he get this? Read Daniel 11. The king of the north, king of the south, and up comes this arrogant leader that's very much like the Antichrist described in 2 Thessalonians 2, and he's leading a force up from, up from Egypt, up from the south. He, he fights a king from the north, uh, and back and forth it goes. You can read about it in Daniel 11. I'm not going into the details. The, the king from the west, he thinks, is the coalition known as the revived Roman Empire. Uh, all these details you don't need to focus on. But then there's that army from the east that's mentioned in Revelation 9, 200 million strong. Revelation 9 describes an army, uh, 200 million strong. There it is on the middle of page 9, Revelation 9, 13 through 16. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, so there's the sixth trumpet. And I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. Well, there's never been an army that size, not in all history. And so the interpretation there is that that's some kind of oriental coalition. A huge population in the East. You know that. The two most populous nations on Earth are China and India. Together they make up, I don't know what, but 40% of the population of the Earth. So 200 million would be no big uh, effort um, for those two nations. Uh, so at any rate, an Oriental army coming from the East. Uh, what's going on? They're all converging. They're all coming together. And that most certainly is going to happen. No doubt about that. Revelation 16, 13 through 16, it says, Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. 
So there's a deception that goes out, a satanic deception, but God is using it. God uses evil things to accomplish his ends, right? That's Isaiah 10. We just got done talking about that. And then he judges the ones for doing it. That's what he does. And so he's going to gather these kings together for the great day of God Almighty. They're going to come all together in one place. You remember when Joshua was conquering the promised land? And you remember when he made a a pact foolishly with the Gibeonites? And then the Gibeonites were now in, in an alliance with Israel. They shouldn't have been, but they were, and so there's a promise made then. But then all the, the, the northern kings of the, pro, of the promised land of Palestine were so angry at the Gibeonites that they assembled together to come destroy them. The Gibeonites then run to Joshua and say, help, help, we're going to get wiped out. You're our friends now, remember? So come and help us. And remember what God said to Joshua, don't worry about it, I'm just doing this for efficiency's sake. You know, in, in effect, that's what he said. Don't worry about how many kings. Let's just get it done all at once. Let's gather them together and let's get it done. And that's what happened. Huge, huge bunch of kings coalescing together and uh, Israel defeats them all at once. Well, that's what's going to happen on a far grander scale here at the end of time. He's going to be gathering all of these Gentile nations together for the great day of God Almighty and for the battle. And so it says in Revelation 16, behold, I come like a thief. What does that mean? What a great place for that statement. We've heard it before, but they don't expect him. They're not thinking Jesus at that moment, are they? They're not thinking king of kings and lord of lords. They're thinking they have a mission. We don't know what they're thinking. I don't know what their motives are. God will know what their motives are, and they're all going to be wretched and wicked, and he'll judge them for it. Well, whatever their motives, socioeconomic gain, to get, get the upper hand on the Antichrist, to take over Palestine's oil reserves, I don't know. Who knows? But they're coming. They're coming because God's gathering together, gathering together for the great day of God Almighty. And they're going to come together, and it says... Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So that's where they're going. They're going to Armageddon. They're going to be gathered together. Now, what is Armageddon? Armageddon is a Greek version of a Hebrew word. Har is the Hebrew word for mountain and Megiddo is a place. So it's the mountains of Megiddo, I guess. There really is no mountain called that. So it may be just the hill country there, 60 miles north of Jerusalem. It is a strategically significant place and magnificent for battle. Why? Because it's, it's just a broad open plain surrounded by these hills. And uh, so it's just uh, an incredible place. Napoleon um, called it the greatest battlefield he'd ever seen in his life. That's the way Napoleon thinks. You know, I'd say, what a pretty valley, you know, or something like that. He's saying, what a great battlefield, you know, something like that. Well, that's the way he was. He was a conqueror. But the whole thing is that uh, this area of Megiddo has always been the key to Palestine. You control that area. You're coming down from the north. As I said, they always get invaded from the north. You come down from the north, you have to control this area. Well, all these kings are coming to that place. God is gathering them to Armageddon. He's gathering them together to this place. They're coming to destroy the Jews, to take over Jews, and whatever their motives are, they're coming. Napoleon, it says, stood at Megiddo before the battle that thwarted his attempt to conquer the east and rebuild the Roman Empire, contemplating the enormous plain of Armageddon. The marshal declared all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. What an interesting statement. They're coming. All right, and God's going to assemble them. They're gathered for the final battle. Listen to these prophecies. Joel 3, 19, no, sorry, 9 through 17. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords. Wow, that's a kind of a reversal from what we got in Isaiah 2, remember? Beat your plowshares into swords. And your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations, from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. All right, the Lord's warriors are coming too. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat means the Lord will judge. So that's the place where God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is going to judge. So it's a nickname really for Armageddon, I think. To the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. 
For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord, your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. The times of the Gentiles are over. It's the time of Jesus from that point on in Jerusalem. I mean, there's so much in that prophecy, but they're going to be gathered, multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision. They're being gathered together to be judged by God. And in the middle of it, verse 12, uh, God is coming. Um, sorry, verse 11. Uh, Bring down your warriors, O Lord. So verse 11. Now then there's Ze- Zechariah 14, 2 through 9. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. That's about as plain as you can get. I'm going to gather all the nations against Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Does that sound familiar? When the Son of Man comes and all the holy ones with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. That's what it says. This is, this is talking about the second coming. On that day, there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime. Kind of like gloaming all the time. The light will be somewhat reduced. And so here are all these armies coming and they're looking up and saying, what strange weather we're having. What strange lighting conditions while they're about their business militarily, you see. Little do they know what it means. It's the final day for them. All right, so it's going to be a unique day. Unlike any there had been up to that point. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. So the Lord's coming back. Now, this battle will be the most one-sided in history, friends. (laughs) I mean, I'm telling you what, this is this is a rout. And what's so amazing is all of these armies are coming 200 million against the Jews. I mean, now that's one-sided, don't you think? Well, it is one-sided, but not the way they think. Because Almighty God weighs a trillion tons and, and all of them weigh a speck of dust and whatever side he's on wins. But he's going to be mobilized at this particular moment for the zeal of his own glory and his own name and to save his people. And so out he comes. Revelation 17, 12 through 14, the 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. So they will live at the same time as the Antichrist, these 10 kings, as a coalition of kings are going to come together. And they're, they're, it says in verse 13, they have one purpose, Revelation 17, 13, they have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. How are they going to get there? Well, the rapture. (laughs) That's how they're going to get there. They're going to be with Jesus. We're going to ride with Jesus. The armies of heaven will, will follow Jesus as he comes back to be King of kings and Lord of lords. And so all these ten kings will come together with the beast to make war against the lamb, and they're going to lose. Because Jesus is infinitely powerful. He was right when he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He has all power. And so then comes the glorious appearing. These are the descriptions of the second coming. Matthew 24, 27 through 30. As lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. That's ominous, isn't it? But when you start seeing all the context here, there's just going to be dead bodies everywhere. There's just going to be dead people. People are going to die at the second coming of Christ. It's nothing like the first coming. The first coming, he comes to save. This time he comes to judge. The day of faith will be over. If you didn't take the opportunity of trusting in Jesus when he was invisible, when all you could do is hear and believe, the time is over. The day is gone. The day of salvation has ended. It's not the day of salvation when he comes back. It's a day of judgment and wrath. And so he comes back. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shine or give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see 
Who's the they? They will see the Son of Man. Who's going to see the Son of Man coming? All the nations of the earth. Do you see that? Everybody will see it. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So it will be evident to the entire human race, second coming of Christ. Everybody will see it. History is over when Jesus comes back. It's a massive display of power. Armies from heaven, the glorious King of Kings. Revelation 19 is the description. You want to know what does the second coming of Christ look like? Revelation 19, 11 through 21. That's the description. So first 11 through 18, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. By the way, with justice he judges, this is going to be just. What he's going to do, slaughtering all these people, it's just, it's right. There's nothing wrong. There's no collateral damage here. Everybody who dies deserves to die. That's how it will be. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is uh, dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. It's like being in an all-star game and not getting to play, friends. But we're not needed, all right? We're just there as witnesses. You're not going to be there to fight. And you know why? You're not needed. Why are you not needed? Jesus is enough. Remember the night he was arrested? That was in his first coming, by the way. They went to arrest him and they asked what his name was. Remember, and Jesus, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And what do they all do? They all fall on the ground in front of him. He had power at that moment. He just chose not to use it. This time, he's going to choose to use it. He's coming back and we'll just be there as witnesses. We're just going to watch him do it. He does all the fighting, all of it. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The most powerful weapon in history, that, verse 15. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God. This is grim. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Come and feed on their dead bodies. It's just a mass of slaughter. Well, how are they going to die? We'll see that in a minute. By the way, where does he come to? He comes back to the Mount of Olives. How fitting is that? That's where he left from. That's the last time his feet touched the earth. Remember, he's standing there on the Mount of Olives. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were standing looking up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Zechariah tells us it's to the same place, too. Not just the same way. He's coming back to the same place. So he's coming down, and he will touch down on the Mount of Olives. We've already seen Zechariah 14.4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, Uh, east of Jerusalem, and uh, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, as we've already seen. Uh, By the way, Acts 1.12 confirms that that's where they were. They returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath they walked from the city. Why did they say that? That's where they were, just so that we would know. God loves details, and so that's where Jesus is coming back. So he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. Well, what are the effects of the second coming? Well, on Antichrist, what's going to happen to Antichrist? God's going to deal with him quite directly. Then I saw the beast, Revelation 19, 19 and 20. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So they're done. They're thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, it says in Revelation 20. So they're gone. All right, so so much for the Antichrist and the false prophet. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and will destroy with the splendor of his coming. What does that mean? All he has to do is say, Be gone, and they're gone. (laughs) They, They will be cast into the lake of fire. The most powerful weapon in history is the word of Jesus. 
All right, well, what happens to the rebellious armies, all those human beings that were there? Well, verse 21 tells us what happens to them. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. That's why I said we don't need to fight. Revelation 19.21 is what tells me we won't need to fight. We just need to watch because Jesus is going to kill them all. Okay, Revelation 19.21 says the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and the birds gorged themselves in the flesh. You're saying, would Jesus do that? Would Jesus really do that? Yes, he would really do that. He will do that. He is no different than God the Father. They are one and the same. I and the Father are one. They have the same passion for holiness and righteousness. He would do that and he will do that. And then what's going to happen to all nations? They're going to be judged. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. He's going to gather all the nations and he's going to separate them one from another. He's going to gather them all. Christ will incarcerate Satan at that point. Satan doesn't get thrown in the lake of fire, it seems. Revelation 20, he's going to be chained up and thrown into a pit so that he can't deceive the nations and he'll be there for a thousand years. Hence the millennium, okay? Revelation 21 and 2. Then I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Christ establishes his throne on earth at that point. In short, the millennium begins. So clearly we don't have time to do the millennium tonight. Okay? But this is the doctrine of the second coming. This is what the scripture says is going to happen. And it's glorious, isn't it? It's glorious. So do not fret over evil men. Do not fret over them. Pray for them that God might convert them before they face this terror. This is the thing to be afraid of, the power of God in judgment. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to study tonight, the second coming of Christ. We thank you for the abundance of scripture there is concerning this. I pray that my brothers and sisters here tonight would actually look over the scriptures I've compiled here of all of the references, not all, but many of the references in the New Testament to the second coming of Christ and be edified. Father, help us to realize that there is a moral imperative on us uh, twofold. First of all, we ought to be holy and blameless people as we look forward to the day of God. And secondly, speed its coming by the preaching of the gospel. Help us to remember that these two infinite journeys, the journey of personal holiness and of uh, the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth, this is what we need to do until you return. But Lord, we say with the Apostle Paul, come, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.